And Lord, now lead us in your word. <clears throat> We've come to feast on your word, Lord. Make it burst open and come alive. Captivate us that we would have so much fun, but be so challenged and encouraged and equipped. God, fill me to overflowing with your Holy Spirit, God, that you would speak fluent each one of us individually when we need to hear you and corporately as a family. And God, today, Lord, for this hour that you're going to open up and unpack this, Lord, may we be willing to receive what it is you want to tell us. So have your way now, God, I pray. Draw us in. Put us in the text and may we understand. May we get it. May every one of us get it. And for anyone, if there be anyone who has yet to say yes to you today, let today be the day of their salvation, we pray. Jesus, in your name. Amen. Numbers chapter 25 is where we're at. Make sure you're there, please. <clears throat> and read along with me, if you would, please. <clears throat> it's the fourth book of the Bible, if you're new to it. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, and, new, and Numbers, then Deuteronomy. Fairly likely, by the way, I've been praying about it, but I think what may happen is once we finish the book of Deuteronomy, you know, I mean... We'll probably then move the Old Testament study to Wednesday nights and move and begin the Gospel of Matthew. But what I wanted to do was lay the foundation from the Torah, the first five books, because there's so much drawn from it, it only makes sense to do that. Well, just the same. Read along with me, if you would, please. Verse 1 says, <clears throat> Now Israel remained in Acacia Grove, and the people began to commit harlotry with the women of Moab. They invited the people to the sacrifices of their gods, and the people ate and bowed down to their gods. So Israel was joined to Baal of Peor, and the anger of the Lord was aroused against Israel. Then the Lord said to Moses, Take all the leaders of the people and hang the offenders before the Lord out in the sun, that the fierce anger of the Lord may turn away from Israel. So Moses said to the judges of Israel, Every one of you kill his men who were joined to Baal of Peor. And indeed... One of the children of Israel came and presented to his brethren a Midianite woman in the sight of Moses and in the sight of all the congregation of the children of Israel who were weeping at the door of the tabernacle of meeting. Now when Phinehas, by the way his name means serpent mouth, I, I, I don't know who, what priest names their son serpent mouth. Anyways, uh, you know, maybe he was born going, I don't know, but you get the idea. Now when Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron, the priest, saw it. He rose from among the congregation and took a javelin in his hand. And he went after the man of Israel into the tent and thrust both of them through the man of Israel and the woman through, their, through her body. So the plague was stopped among the children of Israel. And those who died in the plague were 24,000. First Corinthians will tell us that in one day, 23,000 of them fell. Total, 24,000. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron the priest, has turned away my wrath from the children of Israel, because he was zealous with my zeal among them, so that I did not consume the children of Israel in my zeal. Therefore, say, Behold, I give to him a covenant of peace. Covenant of peace. And it shall be to him and his descendants after him a covenant of an everlasting priesthood, because he was zealous for his God and made atonement for the children of Israel. Now the name of the Israelite who was killed, 
who was killed, I'm saying, who, let's see, the name of the Israelite who was killed, who was killed with the Midianite woman, was, can you say, Zimri? Zimri. It means, it's interesting, it means literally to be played like an instrument. And can I just say, Zimri was played. Somebody was playing him. The son of Salu, the leader of the father's house of the Simeonites. And the name of the Midianite woman who was killed was, could you say, Kozvi? Kozvi. Interestingly enough, means to deceive. I don't know about you, but guys, if you meet a girl and she says, Hi, my name is Deceiver, that should, should be the end of the story. I don't care what she looked like. Sorry. There's other ones. There's like Ma'aka, which means like oppression or like torture. Hi, my name is Torture. Oh, thanks for the warning. The daughter of Zur, he was the head of the people of the father's house in Midian. Then the Lord spoke to Moses saying, harass the Midianites and attack them. For they harassed you with their schemes by which they seduced you in the matter of Peor and the matter of Kozvi, the daughter of the leader of Midian, their sister who was killed in the day of the plague because of Peor. Pray with me one more time, would you please? God, thank you for your word and what you're going to do here. Now, please have your way. Oh, Lord, on the other side now of the story of Balaam and Balach, where for three chapters there's been no ability whatsoever for, to curse the people. The people seem to have done in their own heart in an instant what all the armies and the supernatural world that would stand against them could not do with exhausting all of their artillery and yet still could not do with all the time they were granted and still could not do while Israel sat in a valley completely ignorant of the entire battle until now. Lord, you've told us that what things were written were written for our learning that we through patient continuance would actually not fall to the same lusts as these people lusted after. You've told us that we should learn from these mistakes. So, Lord, let every one of us learn what you want us to learn in this time. As we commit every moment to captivate us in your word, we pray, Jesus, in your name. Amen. I would say today, as I would any, please don't just believe me. Don't just assume it's true because I say so. Search the scriptures. Let the Bible always be the final say. Now, obviously, we have a very dark chapter compared to the last three. The last three, of course, many of you are familiar with the talking donkey and the the guy who kind of comes and the donkey seems to have clearer spiritual insight than, of course, the prophet does. And he's for hire. It's a for-profit prophet. Here we are now in a chapter where obviously we see 24,000 people die. I'd like you to think about how many people that is. How many people there are in your city block. How many people there are on a train at one time. How many people are in downtown Leicester Square at one time? And then most start multiplying it. You could pack an arena here for 24,000 people. All dead because of a single event. Seems to be a lasting event, but a single event nonetheless. And I think we better learn from that. How many of us have to watch somebody die around us before we learn from their mistakes? How close of a relationship do we have to have with them before we actually learn from their mistakes? How many times does it have to happen in front of us before we learn from their mistakes? That's what he's telling us here, right? See, now, understand what God's laying out here is something so much more than just. Here's a story about some stupid people and what they did. 
Because the last three chapters have given us keen insight into something that we can go in a million directions with that we would call spiritual warfare. He's shown it to us in a really beautiful way, and that was that the Israel was invincible when they were clinging with their God. It's just that simple. Now, while all of that's happening, they're in a valley, and there is above this is the precipice, an area called Pisgah is one of those areas, because it was the area Israel was right before this, and they had been on the offensive for the first time right before they went in this valley. On the other sides of that, these areas, these high places, apparently seem to be attributed to a god named Baal of Peor. The place Peor is a place, is a location. Baal, by the way, means master. So when we talk about Baal, understand there's a whole lot of them out there. It's sort of like that and then insert whatever you want into the next part of it. And there's this guy, this king, and he recognizes that, that the people that have beat them have been beaten by Israel, so they, they're no match. So they've hired this guy, and for three chapters, he's been trying to get them to curse, this guy to curse Israel. And Israel, completely unaware of it in the valley, <coughs> has been in their camp, got in the center, in his tent. Everything has been all hunky-dory. And while all of that's been happening, this guy has been foaming and jumping and doing his thing, and nothing, 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 nothing can happen to the people down there. Nothing. And so somewhere above them, ignorant of their own type, their entirety, is this battle that's taking place. And here's the crazy part. They've not, listen, 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 they've not needed to do one thing up there to win the battle. Did you get that? All they needed to do was cling with the God who was with them below. And as long as they did that, they were safe. Now, interesting, the book of Ephesians, and I'll just develop it for a quick second. The book of Ephesians actually gives us some interesting insight in that in regards to the spiritual battle. And understand, people go everywhere with it, right? Oh, I spilled something on my shirt, man. Spiritual, spiritual warfare. Oh, man, I missed my bus, man. Spiritual warfare. Oh, no. It's a rainy day. Spiritual warfare. Yeah, you know, it's amazing. Oh, I stepped in a puddle. Spiritual warfare. Like, like I just know a demon put my foot in that puddle. Really? Do you really think that that's what this is all about? Now, don't just believe me, but I'm going to do this quick because I want to get into the crux of our matter here. But the term, by the way, in the, the New King James is the term heavenly places. In the NIV, it'll be heavenlies, but it's the same thing. And it tells us this. Now, no, the place we're most familiar with, it, by the way, probably would be Ephesians 6.12, where it tells us about putting on the armor of God... Right? Because we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers and against mights and dominions or against rulers of darkness of the age, against spiritual hosts and wickedness in the heavenly places. There's this spiritual battle in the heavenly places. And then, of course, if you were raised in sort of the Christianized world, maybe you saw those, you know, you read these present darkness books, you know, you, you know, I'm like, I've been raised by the school of Peretti. Or I watch those like angel wars, like cartoons, and I just know if I have my right angel and all that. Funny, none of that's actually in script. But it really is for entertaining. But, but understand, obviously there's a battle, and the battle takes place in the heavenlies. Now, you need to know that in, the, in regards to Ephesus itself, Ephesus was known for being the place of a mystery cult. To this day, and we've been just outside of Cushodesi several times on the west coast of Turkey where Ephesus is, and then you can learn all kinds of things going there. And you can, by the way, you, we, uh, we have pictures that are carved into the walls that are stone carvings of what a real suit looks like with the little sword and the big shield directly relating to Ephesians 6. And they knew that the two things that they, they were being taught, not from a Christian perspective, but from a Greek perspective, is that the gods dwelt in some place and there was this mystery that connected them. And the whole goal of it was how do we connect ourselves with the world in the heavenlies. But this is what Paul says. The world in the heavenlies, there's a battle going on. But listen to this quickly. Ephesians 1.3 thir- 1, 
Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us, listen, who has blessed us, listen, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies. You need to know, first of all, that place where the battle is, you're blessed with every spiritual blessing. There's no blessing you're lacking. Do you get that? Because if you're blessed with every spiritual blessing, that would mean that any spiritual blessing you have, you're blessed with, which means you're not missing any. Did you get that? In the heavenly places where the battle is, you're not missing any spiritual blessing. I think I've developed that enough. Next, Ephesians 1.20 tells us that Jesus, after being raised from the dead, ascended, and it says, raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places, above every principality, power, might, dominion, and anything that is named. In other words, Jesus is at the right hand of the Father, above every other thing in the heavenly places. So this is what I already know about the heavenly places before I even got to the battle. I'm blessed with every spiritual blessing there. And that Jesus is above anything that could possibly be of any form of power. Third, Ephesians chapter 2, first six verses. Though we were once dead in our trespasses and sin, God in his infinite love for us saved us, made us alive and raised us up. And listen, and made us to sit together and I like the term made us to sit. If you've been a parent, you know what this is like. Or if you've been young enough where your parents have still told you that, where they make you sit. Well, he's made us to sit together in the heavenly places in Christ. Put that together for a second. Jesus is at the right hand of the Father, above every principality, power, might, dominion, and anything that could be named. He is large and in charge above it all. And as he is, God, the moment you said yes to Jesus, if you have said yes to Jesus, if you've accepted the gift of Jesus Christ's death on the cross and his resurrection to be your Lord, he's raised you from the dead and seated you, not just with or around, but literally in Christ. Well, where is Christ? Above every principality, power, might, dominion, anything that is named. Here's the key. If I'm seated in Christ and there's a spiritual battle, is it my job to get off of the lap of God to go fight it? You realize the entire spiritual battle is about getting, staying in the lap of God. That's the point of it. That's the problem we have in our chapter. So when it tells us that he's made us to sit together, and by the way, that we even declare to the principalities this great gift that we've been given in Ephesians 3.10, then what we, what we learn from that is this battle that we fight is a battle to stay, to stay right where we belong in the lap of God. That is the entire spiritual battle. Could you imagine if you missed your bus and then you got to share Jesus with the person on the next one because God had you missed the bus, but you were busy blaming Satan for it. But if you're clinging to Christ, it's not going to work. So you spilled something on your shirt. Maybe it'll humble you a little bit and you'll stop thinking about yourself a little and you'll actually be able to serve better. And our text, by the way, can I just put it this way? It's the two faces of falling away. That's what it would be called, Bruno Jacina. And this is how it begins. The spiritual battle. See, if the enemy can't devour you in the lap of God because Jesus is above it all, well, then his whole goal is to try to lure you out. Wouldn't that make sense? The people remained in Acacia Grove. That's verse 1. Do you see it there? Don't miss this. Now, God could have just said that people remained, and I don't think God actually is exuberant with words. Why, why does he even tell us Acacia Grove? Well, let me ask you, does Acacia sound familiar to any of you? It's a wood, and there's some things made out of Acacia wood. Do you know what's made out of Acacia wood? The ark, the furniture in the tabernacle. 
And by the way, the thing about acacia wood is it's got a very unique smell, very much like cedar, that it, it emits a resin that's very aromatic. It's a beautiful smell. And God, and isn't it beautiful how God does this, that he associates smells with memories? Have you done this? You can smell a certain smell and you're like, oh, that smells like grandma. Usually that's never a great smell. Sorry, Grandma. My grandmother lived in St. Louis, and she lived in a very poor neighborhood where they threw their rubbish just outside and it would rot. And there's a specific smell of rotted garbage that reminds me of Grandma's house. Strangely enough, of all the rotten smells, that's one of the smells that's not as rotten because it reminds me of Grandma. And she was pretty cool, actually. There are certain smells that could smell nice, but they related to something else, and it's a horrible thing. But what would it be like for the people to smell acacia when they've been making an ark? instruments of intimacy in a tent where God wanted us to be. And it's interesting because that's the place where he wanted his people intimate with him. By the end of the chapter, somebody else is going to be intimate in a tent in a very different way. You see the difference. Now hear me on this. The people remained there and it tells us that they began to commit harlotry. Notice God didn't say that they actually just started acting stupid. He didn't just say they were being disobedient. See, what he called it was more than actually even adultery. He called it harlotry. Now, I recognize we're among some people here that, well, we always want to be careful what we say. But the idea is quite simple. It's taking something that was intended to be beautiful and intimate and perfect and pure and cheapens it to something that's just for hire. Something that God invented to be the losing of yourself, to be conjoined, and forgive me, I don't want to develop this too much, but you get the idea. To something that is just a base appetite that you shell it some cash for like a burger. And that's the term God uses. See, the interesting thing about this is that God intended our relationship with him to be beautiful and sublime and transcending and amazing and consuming and and intoxicating in the best of ways. And yet in all of that, you can take those same things and make them cheap, superficial, and for hire. And you can do that with worship. You can worship worship. You can get so caught up in making sure you get an experience out of it that it really isn't a matter of what you're singing. And I've watched this because I'm real careful about lyric. That's a big deal for me. It's one of the reasons why we write most of our songs. But you can you ever listen to a worship song and if you're careful about it and you really love the song and then there's one line that ruins the whole thing. And you're like so into it and you're like, what the heck was that? That has no purpose. Or you see people and it's like they don't even know what they're singing anymore, but their hands are raised and they're going like this. And it's kind of like, I'm an idiot. I'm an idiot. Yeah. And you're like, what, 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 what? And I've watched this where what's being sung made so little sense anymore, but we're just so caught up in the moment. And all we really wants the experience. God doesn't have to be in the room anymore. As long as we have the right sound system, the right band, and to be honest, a little bit of pyrotechnics, God really doesn't have to be in the room at all. Because we can have the experience without him. You can do that in regards to church. You can do that with a teacher by far. You can do that with just about anything. You can do it with anything, quote-unquote, Christianese. And the sad part about it is God invented all of those things so we would actually fall in love with him and not just serve him like he's a boss. Baal means master. 
But God intended to be so much more. He relates to us as a father and as a groom for purpose. But by one verse in Scripture, which, by the way, according to the book of Numbers, it's made clear that the reason this all happened it was because of the counsel, by the way, of Balakum, the guy that couldn't curse the people, but gave counsel instead to make sure. Listen, Numbers 31.16 says this, Look, the women caused the children of Israel through the counsel of Balakum to trespass against the Lord. And the incident of Peor, God made it really clear. This prophet for hire said, look at, I... I can't curse them because they're in the lap of God. But if you can get them out of that, and there's one thing that seems to work more than anything. Now, follow me on this for a second, and then we get right into the text, because we're going to look at it from two angles. We'll look at it from the outside and from the inside. The outside's right here in our text. The inside's in Mark 14, by the way. <clears throat> if we were created to glorify God, then perhaps our biggest struggle would be important. If we were created to serve God, perhaps our biggest challenge would be purpose. But God didn't create you to serve him. He did not create you to glorify him. He created you to be with him. He created you with a capacity for companionship that he even made clear in the first three chapters of Genesis. That's what you were made for. You were made as an incomplete part, not for another human being, but for a God who made that part unique to his shape. And because of that, there's a part inside of us that wakes up craving something, but we don't even know what it is. But every equated smile makes a difference. Think about the, the times where you look back with regret, those moments that still cut deep into your heart, those opportunities where you could have gotten something, it was on sale, but someone got the last one. Oh, but it was such a good thing, but maybe. That audition where you almost, but you didn't make it. That situation where you could have gotten the promotion, but you didn't. Yeah, maybe there's a part of you that fits in the category of, yeah, that's a bummer. But none of those cut as deep as that of an individual looking at you and saying, you're not enough. In whatever way that is, I just want to be friends, it's not you, it's me, or whatever it is. Or, will you go out with me? No. Or whatever it is. But however that works, those are the things that cut deep that we remember. Fifteen amazing things could happen to us. Miracles could be happening to us. But if somebody gives us the wrong look and says the wrong thing to us, that's what we go and take with us to our pillow? How does that work? Because what we're created for is fellowship. We were created for a relationship. And if we're not careful, we'll get it in the wrong place. And that's the problem here, beloved. So understand something. Scripturally, we know the text, which makes it even more damning, where it tells us, for instance, in Second Corinthians 6, that we're not to be unequally yoked with unbelievers. And the idea is quite simple. You're going in one direction, they're going in the other. Someone's going to have to stop going the direction they're going to stay with the other. But dare I say it? It's not enough for the person to just say they're a Christian either. Let's just get real. Don't you think Satan would tell you that he was a Christian? And I've heard people, oh, well, you know, he said he was a Christian. I'm like, well, you know, to be honest, Satan would say that too. And, you know, you know what, probably that guy probably was Satan now that I think about it. I mean, you know, the reason I say that is that if, you, what, if we really allow God to fill the hole, we don't enter into another relationship with somebody starving. And the Bible tells us that to a starving soul, even the most bitter thing is sweet. Hey, you get hungry enough, you'll eat your sock. You get even hungry, you might eat mine. But if you're really satisfied, 
Even a good dessert doesn't sound good anymore. You ever been so full that even a thing that smells great, you just go, oh, I don't even want to smell that right now. Oh, gosh. Could you imagine if we were like that in regards to our desire for companionship? We were so full of Christ. They would be like, you know, that just doesn't smell as good as it used to. See, what Balachim said to these people is, you know, these people, they want to be important. And then the moment a new thing steps in, the peacocks come out, you know. Everyone kind of flips out their feathers to make sure to see who it is that's going to get liked first. Who's going to get the attention? Who's going to get the time? So hear me on this, because I would love to save you the scars of it. And let's face it, if you make those choices... And then you end up in the situation, no matter how you have to gnaw off your arm to get out of it, you're going to carry that scar with you. Wouldn't it be better to say no before it starts? Follow me on this, okay? There's two sides to it. There's the side in regards to the outside, but I want to take you to the inside. And I want you to do this. If you would, if you have your Bibles, flip to the Gospel of Matthew chapter 14. Many of us are familiar with the text. In chapter 14 is the arrest of Jesus and the betrayal of Peter. I'd like to show you what it looks like on the inside. And this is, like it said, the two faces of a fall. This is the, side, the inside face. Are you there? Beautiful. Sorry, you can nod, right? I mean, this, is, this is in this country. Yes, are we? okay. Look at verse 27 with me. He's about to be arrested, Jesus. And in Matthew 14, 27, Jesus says, All of you will be made to stumble because of me this night. For it is written, I'll strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. Now, Jesus knows if it must... No, Mark, Mark 14. Did I say Matthew? Sorry, see what happens? This is why you're supposed to check me. Thank you, see? Don't just believe me. Go to Mark 14. That will get you where you need to go. Thank you. Thank you. Why do I do that? Mark 14, 27 says, Jesus spoke to him and said, all of you will be made to stumble because it's in scripture. Strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I've been raised, I will go before you to Galilee. That's the comfort. Peter responds in verse 29, even if all are made to stumble, yet I will not be. Don't worry, Jesus, you got me. Rocky. Jesus said to him, assuredly, I say to you today, even this night, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me thrice. But he spoke even more vehemently. You ever done this with God? You thought if you could just pray a little more intensely, God will believe it this time? Not that I've ever done that. If I have to die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said likewise. Here's the beginning of a fall. And it's the simplest thing. Listen closely. There will be, in essence, nine things, but I won't develop them all like this. The first is an overestimation of personal strength. That's it. You are just convinced you're stronger than you are. And so you know what you say is, oh, I'll never do that again. I'll never get drunk like that again. I'll never get near that sexual situation again. I'll never do internet porn again. I will certainly never hang out with that group of people again. I'll never go near any of that. Because you know why? Because this time I mean it more. With this particular moment, when they're not near, and the alcohol's not near, and the drug's not near, and that person's not near, I really mean it. Don't worry, I have the strength. That's a real easy way to start. Let this sink down deep and, and let this voice irritate you away from making that choice the next time you're there. You know, oh, that's a little overestimation of your personal strength, isn't it? And that's how it starts. 
Peter's like, there's no possible way I could deny you tonight. Jesus is like, it's scripture. It's not going to be broken. Clearly, it's going to happen. Here's the second thing. By verse 32, it tells us that Jesus came to a place that was called Gethsemane, which, by the way, means the olive press. It's at the bottom of the Mount of Olives. That's a good place for an olive press. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. Now, by the way, John will tell us that this was a place Jesus had met often with Judas, and that's important because he wanted to make sure that Judas could find him to arrest him. So he'd pick a place, and he went there regularly so that Judas would know where to find him. Now, we took with him Peter, James, and John, and he began to be troubled and deeply distressed, literally started to break down. And he said to them, my soul is exceedingly sorrowful, even to death. Stay here and watch. He went a little further. About a stone's throw is what we read. And he fell to the ground and prayed, if it were possible that this hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not what I will, but what you will. Then he came and he found them sleeping. And notice who he speaks to. Did you notice that? So he said to Peter, Simon, are you sleeping? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray, lest or else you enter into temptation. The spirit is willing. I'll agree with you on that, but the flesh is weak. And they went away and prayed the same words, and they went and fell asleep again. It'll happen three times. Hey, where the first thing starts with an overestimation of your personal strength, can I say the second thing, to be honest? Is you stop watching. You stop looking out. So what happens is this. Maybe you've fallen at one point and you hated it, man. And there was a part of you, no, please hear me. There's a difference between hating your sin and hating the consequences. That's one thing we deal with because we do a lot of restoration work here. So someone comes and they've done something and it's ruined their family. It's ruined their reputation. It's ruined who they've been. That's understandable. And but what happens is the question is, do you hate the sin or do you just hate its consequences? Because if, the conse- if it's just the consequences, once they start to lighten, you'll go back into the sin. We've been for over three and a half years now at a rehab house every Thursday morning. And you can sit and talk to these guys and ask them, do you hate your sin or do you hate your consequences? So you're with the guy and then you got pregnant. You decided you were going to try to deal with it however you were going to try to deal with it. And you say at that moment, there's no possible way I'll ever do that again. I'll never get near that again. And you think that somehow it's enough for you just to be determined. You don't cry out for help. You don't ask for accountability. You don't surround yourself in ways and buffer the walls to keep yourself from doing that again. You just think, if I could just mean it. In the moment you know that that's the case, you're already in trouble. I'll never look at internet porn again, but you won't get any filters and you won't get any accountability software like X3 that doesn't even interfere. And you convince yourself that's okay because what you'll say is, well, it'll slow down from from 1.6 to 1.9 seconds. And that's a good enough reason. Hey, if you have a real problem with it, throw out your laptop altogether. Learn how to write again. People actually do that, by the way. Or put, your, put the computer in a place where everybody can see it, and the only time you can turn it on is when they're there. But that's humbling. Yeah, so, so should the sin be, right? But what happens is then you stop. What, after the sort of things start to blow over for a moment, and I imagine there was some intensity when Jesus said, you're going to fall. No, no way. Jesus is like, really, Peter? No, 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 really. And you've got to wait for that moment to pass. But then you start easing up, and you stop protecting yourself like you did before. Like all of a sudden you stop watching out for those things that were pitfalls. And what happens is you start, you know, you, you don't erase like all of the, the numbers in your phone. You know, you, you don't like really shut it down and 
you, you kind of like lock the door, but you don't put a wall there instead. And then you stop watching. And you, get, you ease up a little bit. And it adds human nature. We ease up on our convictions and we, we get a little lighter about it. And the next thing you know, we're in that place where we're going to fall again. That's our second step, by the way. Well, look at what happens next. Jesus will be arrested, of course. By four, verse 47, it tells us, and one of those, we'll learn it's Simon Peter. We'll learn that the guy's name is Malchus. He's the high priest's servant. It says that he stood by, drew his sword, and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear, for which we read Jesus will heal the ear and rebuke Peter. The third thing's a real common thing, and it's really this, just the fight the need to sacrifice. See, Jesus' whole thing was, I'm going to go sacrifice. I'm going to go to the cross. And Jesus told us, unless we're going to call, unless we're willing to pick up our own cross and follow him, we shouldn't even call ourselves disciples. That becomes the problem. And we're like, ah, I don't need to sacrifice. Come on, really? Do I need to do all that? Do I really need, oh, come on, that's rough. Can we just do this a little bit more conveniently? No. And so we fight the need to sacrifice, and you know what's going to happen next. You are in route. You started by trusting your own strength. Then you got careless with what you're watching. Instead, at this point now, you're like no longer being watchful, but you're sleeping when you should be alert. And then you fight the cross. Ultimately, it tells us in verse 53, they led Jesus away to the high priest. And with him were assembled the chief priests, the elders, and the scribes. And it says in verse 24, but Peter followed him at a distance, right into the courtyard of the priest, of the high priest. And he sat with the servants and warmed himself at the fire. Now it starts to show. You distance yourself from Jesus and his people. You move into the enemy's camp. And you draw from them what you think you need. In this case, it's just warmth from the fire. See, you wouldn't have gone there at all like this. You know, what's interesting is John is also in that courtyard somewhere. I know that because John's the one who has to get Peter into the courtyard. But he never denies knowing Jesus. Somehow in all of this, John stays clean. Peter, on the other hand, is going to fall hard here. Just like some of us or many of us have in our life some point in some way or another. Whether other people have known or not. Or you deal, you deal with the thing. And the bottom line is, should any sin be a convenient or joyful thing? And you back, you know that if you're going to start entertaining this and getting serious about this sin, you can't hang out with God's people. They're going to irritate you, aren't they? They're going to drive you mental. And you don't want to, I mean, the same songs of praise that you used to sing out of the top of your lungs, now all of a sudden you don't want to sing at all. It irritates you, it bothers you, it crawls in your skin now. And that same church that you loved so much, now all of a sudden you're like, yeah, but that person bothers me, or that person's irritating, or, well, I don't like this about it, I don't like the color of the pews, or I don't like, what, the, you know, the, the third tile on the stained glass, I wanted it to be blue and it's green. It's amazing what you can find at a moment like that. And what will happen is, well, it's raining, so I'm probably sick. Well, the buses aren't running the same way, so I probably shouldn't, can't get one. It'd probably be full anyways. Well, you know, and you know how that works. And you start distancing yourself. And once you used to love being in the assembly of believers, and now all of a sudden it's starting to really bother you. See, but the problem isn't them. The problem's you. Because everyone there hasn't probably changed much. That's not the variable. So you pull out and you're like, well, you've got to be somewhere. 
So you know what's, what's amazing is you'll say, I don't want to go there. There's too many hypocrites. I'll go to the bars. Do you really think the bars is a place without hypocrites? Hypocrite means to wear a mask. Every person in the bar is wearing a mask. Some gals, actually, the makeup's a mask. It's like an, an inch and a half thick. You couldn't recognize them once they actually take that sort of chisel and so forth and get it all off at night. And the guys, too, whether it's makeup or not, they do it, too. Everybody's wearing their mask. And the bottom line is, convince yourself and lie all you want. But going to another place and heading to the enemy's camp is not anything but a telltale sign that what you're trying to do is get out, trying to sin. Because you know, that, well, oddly enough, you'll probably know this, the Lord will deploy a mole and stick them in the, the, the bar you're at. And they'll say, you need to go back to church. Has anyone ever told you that? That wasn't even a believer? I love it when that happens. They're like, you know, when I came back to church, it's because I was there and some guy that was drunk said, you should get back to church, church boy. I'm like, praise God. Hey, if he could use a donkey, he could use a drunk. Let's be honest. So Peter's there. He's warming himself by the fire and they start calling him to the carpet and he plays dumb. I don't know what you're talking about. What? And he denies it outright and then ultimately curses himself. That's the, that's the breakdown from the inside. Listen to this again. We'll get to how it looks on the outside here. It starts by trusting in your strength instead of God's. Hey, but for the grace of God, we would all make the stupidest choices of our lives and destroy everyone around us. Praise God, some of us know it enough to surround ourselves and be careful. Then we get, then we get lax on being watchful. Then we fight the cross. We don't want to do anything that involves sacrifice. Service isn't fun anymore. Then we distance ourselves from Jesus and his people. We move into the enemy's camp. We think we draw what we need from there. And we ultimately find ourselves falling. That's what it looks like on the inside. But let me show you how it looks on the outside. Back in our text, Numbers, now it goes straight through. <clears throat> in Numbers chapter 25, this is what it looks like. Israel, first of all, remained. Interesting for what it's worth. The word remained is the word yeshav, and it's the word that's often used for to marry, by the way, to settle down. Instead of them being ready to be deployed, what they started to do was settle down in a place that God meant to be a pit stop. In other words, they started decorating their hotel room. In verse 2, it tells us then what happened is that the girls invited them. Now listen, I want you to consider this. Guys, Israelite gentlemen, we're in the camp doing campy things, working campy work, Singing campy songs. Guys. The Moabite gals start showing up. They're a little unique. They're a bit exotic. Haven't seen one of those. That's not true. What Moabite woman would we know has been in the camp before this? Moses' wife. Don't forget the fact that Moses was married to a Midianite girl. Now, we don't know whether she's with them anymore, because to be honest, we don't see it here. But Moses, if anyone would be aware of what the Midianites were like, right? He lived with them for 40 years. They were a nomadic group of people. They traveled around all over the place and at this point have settled with the Moabites. But when it says they invited the people to the sacrifices of their gods, don't miss this. Where do you think that is? Where do you think a sacrifice to a Moabite god or a Midianite god is going to be? Do you think it's in Simeon's camp? Do you think it's in Reuben's camp? Or do you think it's outside of the camp? Yeah, outside of the camp. 
We know that because the problem is going to happen at, Be- at Peor. That's the last place, the place, by the way, where Balaam couldn't curse them. So what happens is it starts with an invitation. Listen, listen, listen. Don't miss this because, gals, you know what happens to you too. Well, not you specifically, but you can decide. Maybe. I don't know. Um, follow me on this. This is how it starts. It starts with an invitation. But the invitation, listen, listen, is to get out of the camp. That's where it starts. Listen, because that can happen Christian to Christian too. Because what if the camp were the camp of ministry? And you're serving the Lord and you love Jesus and you are full on. And you're like, this is what I want to do. And I'm serving the Lord and I'm going full on for it. And then, then she comes into the room and it's like all of a sudden, like, and everything changes. That was for you, by the way. It was like a little samba music. So, and, and what happens, and what happens is, is that all of a sudden she catches the guy's eye. And she's a Christian, and she like and she can pray. And it's like every time she does something Christianese, he falls for her because he's hungry for someone, and she fit the mold. She doesn't have to pray well. She doesn't have to pray scripture. She doesn't have to read her Bible. I go to church. That's enough. You breathe. You're a girl. You go to church. I love you. But he was serving the Lord. I mean, he was full on. And what happens is, if he's going to pursue her, he has to step out of where he's at to go to where she's at to get her. Does that sound concerning to you? Because it does to me. What if the guy were full on for the Lord and she's brought into the camp? But she's brought into the camp to stay in the camp because what she really wants is to serve the Lord. Have you ever watched that happen? Because that is like, boom! It's something really cool. Because all of a sudden, somebody's loving God and somebody else is loving God and they both have the same heart and they do this and this thing explodes and great stuff happens. That's the way it's supposed to be. That's the way it's supposed to be. You know what the sad part about it is? Most of the people in here will nod with me but not take that advice. Because you're like, well, maybe I'll just die alone. Could you imagine? Jesus died on a cross, hung naked, and was tortured to death to be with you. And you're going to tell him, but I'm going to be all alone. Think that through. You really think Jesus is like, oh, yeah, you're probably right. Why don't you just fall for a loser? Because that's cool. Really? Really? And this is where it starts. There's an invitation. And the invitation is out. And that's exotic. Hey, I've never been to a party where everybody gets wasted. Oh, and you know what you'll do? You'll say, don't worry, it's going to be ministry. You know, what the, you know what the ministry is? I'm going to go there and I'm going to like emote holiness. I'm going to walk in the room and I'm going to look uncomfortable and dorky because I've never been in a place like this before. And that's holiness. I'm going to go by myself in case, because I, you know, I don't want anyone blowing my cool. And I'm going to walk in the room and be like, mm, no, no, I'm, I'm, I don't drink that I, I, I'm not thirsty. And you're going to sit uncomfortable on a couch somewhere by yourself. I'm doing ministry. And somewhere down the line, unless somebody gets, sits near you, because the moment someone sits near you, goes, hey man, what are you doing? Hey, then you got befriended and now you got latched. Now you have a latch into the room now. But before that point, you're like, what am I doing here? What am I doing here? What am I doing here? 
that the moment somebody connects with you and someone's like, it's like, you don't think that Christians are the only ones that have evangelists. It's like the enemy has them, but they're just not evangelists. They're bad evangelists. And, you know, and with that, they're like, well, wait, well, wait a minute. Why don't you come and hang out with us? And, come on, you can be part of our crew. And I want to be wanted and I want to be wantable. And I'm feeling wantable in a whole new camp now. Come on. It was an invitation. It's just an invitation. It's just an invitation. It's not like a date. Yes, it is. Do you have any friends that love you enough to be able to say, are you really that stupid? Do you have those kind of friends? If not, give me a call. I'll do it for you. He says he's a Christian. That's good enough for you? She says she's a Christian. Where's the ministry? They invited the people to the sacrifices of their gods. Hey, look, you don't have to sacrifice. You don't have to sacrifice. You don't have to buy. Just come and hang out. Because right now it's just foreign and it's kind of exciting. Come and hang out with us. We're all going to get wasted. We're going to some, you know, we're going to huff a little coke. That's all right. Shoot a little heroin. I know that sounds weird, but, but just hang out, man. Just hang out. The next thing it says in the people eight. In other words, now you're at a place where you're breaking bread with people and now you're starting to build relationships with people. And the moment you start building relationships with people, that means that at this point now, not going is going to get awkward. Does that make sense? Because the moment you build a relationship with someone, no matter what that relationship is, not going now, you have to feel like you have to give an answer for it. And the answer you wanted, that you're supposed to get from the beginning is, that's not good. I don't want to be near this. But now you feel like you're going to be forced to say that or actually compromise instead, which is easier to do. And the person's going to go, hey, we have another party tonight. Do you want to come? And if you're like, if you're really battling, you're like, well, I'm not really feeling very good. Or, you know, whatever the excuses we made up that we've been telling church, now we're actually telling these people. And, and now we're like, oh, I don't know. And I, you know, I just, well, I'm, I'm busy getting a tattoo. That would be cool. But we take an invitation. Then we sit and eat with the people. And then we bow down to their gods. And then we're joined to them. That's the process here. And it happened because we wanted to be wantable. And somebody actually said you were wanted. But you weren't wanted for the right thing. And that becomes the problem. Closing this up, what do we do if you're, what if you're stuck in that now? Because it's easy to do. And you know you're, not in the, you're in a relationship that doesn't honor God. You're not in a place where you know that your lifestyle does not honor God. And my God is desperate, desperate for you. He loves you and he wants you so bad he'd rather die than live without you. And he knows everything about you and still wants you. And there's nothing he's going to discover and not want you. And then all of this, how do we deal with this? What's amazing is a thousand compromises demand a drastic step to get out. You can inch your way into a prison cell, but it's not easy to break out, is it? So what, this is what happens. God starts responding. You know, he starts responding. Everything around you, listen, 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 listen. We're almost done. Everything around you starts dying. That's what happens. The joy, that starts dying. The peace, oh, that starts dying. That's easy. The rest, that starts dying. The hope, that starts dying. All that stuff starts dying. We know why it starts dying? Because you're not letting God be the center of the camp anymore. And my God is jealous. But hear me on this. That's not a character fault. That's actually a good thing because you're never jealous of what you don't want. I don't like coffee. Don't hate me for it. You can have mine. Funny, every place I go, they seem to give me free coffee. 
They walk in, Tony, I have some coffee. Are you kidding me? I can go to a place that's called Just Tea, and they give me a cappuccino. Think, huh? So hang out with me. You'll get a lot of free coffee. So if you won a $5,000 or pound card for Starbucks, I'm not going to cry and be jealous over it. I don't like country music. Don't hate me for that either. You can love it. It doesn't matter. Heaven's big enough for both of us. But if you won, like, you know, a lifetime supply of tickets to the tractor pool, Slim Willie, Divorce Me, COD, whatever, and Taylor this and whatever, hey, you know what? Be my guest. I'm not going to be jealous for you. I'd be like, good. Y'all go and have fun now. But I would be jealous of what I wanted. And the only thing in Scripture God's jealous of is you. Are you aware of that? Everything else doesn't matter. Because the only thing he wants is you. It's the only listen, The only thing he wants is you. The only thing he wants is you. And anything in the way of that becomes his, his opponent. Are you aware of that? Because he wants you that bad. So what happens? How do we deal with it? What if you're in that situation? Listen to this gentle and loving little way to sneak your way. You can sneak your way in, but you're not sneaking your way out. Sneaking your way into a hostage situation does not mean you sneak your way out of it. Verse 4, the Lord said to Moses, take all the leaders of the people and hang them. How's that? I want you to identify the ringleaders who led you into this and, and let it die. Let it die and don't die. This is something private. Let it die publicly because you've been sneaking in. Let it die publicly. And if there's a friend and they've been pulling you into sex or they've been pulling you into drugs or they've been pulling you into it, let me give you four areas real quick. Then no, no, go real quick. One is, is sobriety. Someone says, hey, look, it. I know that you're being sober, but oh, come on, a few of this. But you know that it's against your conscience. Second is sensuality. You have a conviction and they're like, no, 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 let's go way past that. That's the second. The third, by the way, is seriousness in regards to the holiness and the convictions you have. And you want to get closer to the Lord. And they're like, come on, stop getting overboard with it. And the fourth is sincerity. They're big on gossip. They're big on accusing. They're big on fault finding. So what happens is you're no longer sincere with the people around you. Hey, identify those people and let it die publicly. Because if you don't let it die publicly, you'll go back. And like, you know what? Hey, look, maybe you're great with other people, but we can't hang out because when we hang out, I am less sincere about the people that I should be loving. And I am less on fire for Christ. And that is not what this is intended to be. I'm going to let this hang. And what if we were serious? Because you realize that God made that choice for us. And if we could really make that choice, could you imagine how God would respond? He would flood us with a peace we've never had to that degree, or a joy or a love that we never have to that degree. Because what we're doing for the first time in our life is actually, listen, listen, choosing something under God instead of over God. Hey, it's one thing if a guy says he likes you when you're his only option. But the moment he gets other options, you see how sincere he is. Doesn't that make sense? But if he's had all kinds of choices, but he's like, you're the one I want, everything changes. How much more a perfect God in the choices we make? I'd rather have this loser than hang out with you. I'd rather chase after this stupid thing I'm not going to want in a week than be intimate with you. What does that look like? God says, let it hang, let it die. Let it die. Finally, as this wraps around here, we get this crazy story in verse 6. Do you see it? 
And if you, if you just kind of read it quickly, you can miss it. There's a guy, by the way, he pre- says he presents a Midianite woman in the sight of Moses, and then some guy takes a javelin and kills the two of them in their tent. And you're like, what? And then God says, well done, you were, you were zealous for me. So what I need to do is find a javelin and start killing people when they're camping. Is that what that means? Okay, wait a minute. Where were the women? The women were leading them out of the camp, right? That's where this starts. Now all of a sudden we realize that the people of Israel are weeping at the tabernacle. Now, whether they're weeping because of the plague or whether they're weeping because they're genuinely repentant, we don't know. Hey, you can't tell from the outside, can you? And that's what we're looking at the outside here. But I do know the word. Say this word with me. Would you? Karab. Try it with me. That's Hebrew. So we have to do it like Karab. Come on, there's a little bit more of you than that. Karab. And thank you, that's better. And that's the word that's used here for present. It literally means to approach, bring near, or draw near. That's what it means. So there's a Midianite woman in the camp. And she is brought before the people, or he draws near to the gal. That much we know. The next thing we know is that she's killed, and the guy are killed. Where are they when they die? In a tent. How many times does he have to stab them to kill them both? One time. That tells you something. The guy didn't have to do but throw one javelin thrust to kill them both. This guy in the face of Moses took a Midianite woman that had been leading others astray, which, by the way, we'll learn is actually one of the daughters of the leaders that have been doing this. Takes and goes, ha, 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 and he takes her to his tent, gets on top of her, and the two of them become a sandwich with a nice little sticking in the top of it. Because here's the point, is that that guy, in the brazen of all this, this is what happens. Somebody starts with something sly. She's like, come on this way. Come and hang out here. It's just an invitation. But now all of a sudden, that which has gone out of the camp has become in the camp. Does that make sense? And it starts with you being invited out of things, but sooner or later it becomes the center of your life now. And that same thing, that just seemed like it was just a little, and the moment you have to say it's just a little, it's a problem. It's just a little AIDS. Just a little cancer. Just a little gangrene. What's the difference? Really? It's just a little psycho killer. I just invited him in for a little bit. I mean, I want to hung out with him, but I'm inviting him into the house. Yeah, that's just stupid. And this guy now has taken this girl in the face of Moses while people are weeping. He's like, I don't care about you guys anymore. This isn't about being a part of you anymore. I don't feel a part of you anymore. You guys are all hypocrites anyways. Look at you weeping there anyways. You probably don't even mean it. You know what I'm going to do? I'm just going to, you know, and you're saying that because you think, what, you're better? And he takes the gal and takes him into his tent. And Eliezer, Eliezer's son, Phineas, says, I've had enough of this. This does not, listen, this does not belong in the camp. And this is what happens into the church now. The church starts inviting it in. Now we're debating on whether or not we should have this kind of priest. We're debating on whether or not this is a sexual sin at all anymore. We're debating whether or not, what in the world just happened? We invited it into our tent is what would happen. Is there anyone that's willing to actually get out there and take the javelin and go, BAM! We're done with this. This is death. And I don't want any of it here. Well, then let it be said now, can we? Because this needs to be done. No more sexual sin on any of us. Not a little anything. We want to be pure before God. But we want to replace it. God's not a God of Nazis. He's a God of instead of. And whatever that thing is that's trying to lead you out of the camp so you could go and get married to that instead and then bring it into this. Listen, I'm not telling you that you need to be perfect before you come to church. What I'm telling you is we need to be serious when we come to church. 
serious enough to let God actually change us. Because otherwise what we do is we try to get a paint job on the front of us and walk out of here and we're a bigger hypocrite than we started because what we're really not looking to do is become serious and changed. But I want to be serious and changed. I mean, I want to be real about this. And it starts with us saying, look it, this is a tendency. And in Exodus 34, when God said this, he goes, listen, you guys need to know this. You're inclined to going after this. In the book of Numbers prior, he said, look, you need to put a tassel. Do you remember that? Because your heart is inclined to wander. You are built to wander. But I didn't build you that way. And how does this thing end? This thing ends with a guy saying, you know what? It is not going to be in this camp. Hey, look at If you're struggling with something, then let's deal with it. But it starts with us admitting it's wrong. That's how this starts. See, this guy, he said, how could this be wrong? He took this girl right in the face of Moses, the giver of the law, and walked into his tent and said, whatever, this isn't wrong at all. It is wrong. Fornication is wrong. Adultery is wrong. Homosexuality is wrong. Hey, oh, oh goodness, did I just say that? Yes, I did. But, but hear me on this. Getting stoned is wrong. Anything that replaces God is wrong. And what if we actually let it go and let God do what he wanted? Could you imagine? And if, like, if we could admit it's wrong, then we could deal with it and let God start eradicating it from our lives. The problem isn't that. The problem is when we're like, that's not really wrong. If Scripture says it's wrong, it's wrong. How's that? You know, God only said it was wrong 14 times in Scripture. I'm a parent. If I have to say something to my child 14 times and they still don't think I got it wrong, you know, that's clearly a problem. So God, at the end of it all, he says, you know, this guy, I wanna, I'm, I'm going to bless him because this is what he did. Because he was really willing to eradicate this. This, this gal, deceiver. The daughter of a, a rock cliff. Interesting, because that's, by the way, where they would have to go to sacrifice. What Peor was a rock cliff, by the way. And he says, this is what I want you to do now. I want you to attack back. Now, here's the question. How do we attack the deceivers back? With the gospel of Jesus Christ. We attack with the, the word of God. Now, I'm not talking about you go and start riddling people full of holes. What you start doing is you start telling them this is the truth and this is the way it is. And that's just all there is to it. That's what we do. These people weren't even believers, I want to remind you. These girls weren't believers. The Midianites weren't believers. So you start talking about unbelievers out there trying to attack the church and infiltrating the church. Sure, you could go to all kinds of places and stay unsaved and feel all kinds of fine about it. I don't want that here. Please hear me. The gospel will always be our offensive weapon. Here's my last thing. We'll go to prayer. And I'm going to use an American analogy because I have enough Americans here to be able to use it. We can use it. It still applies. You just have to think rugby. Does that help? Although I saw something on, online, it was called football, and it was like neither. It was like from a, a Richmond team, all them, and then I, like they kicked it and they caught it and they kicked it. And they, I don't know what in the world that guy was doing. He was just running around the field, and anyways, and then he bounced it and he tried to dribble it. I don't know what in the world was going on. I'm like, what the? What's this? This is nothing, or a lot of things. I played American football for a period of time, and, and part of that is the whole goal of it ultimately is to get this little ball to the other side. You get a certain amount of opportunities, a certain amount of tries, and a very large group of people that try to say they really aren't interested in you getting, making any progress. But this is one thing I've learned over the years as things have progressed, is that 
Today, the way that they tackle is very different than they did a little while ago. I mean, I actually lived in a time period when we had nine planets. Um, it's amazing what's happened since then. Of course, back then, too, we were heading into an ice age. Now, global warming, or I don't know what's going on. Um, in those days, what they basically did is they went after your knees. They went after your knees and shoulders. And there was a reason for it, because if you could really injure a guy's knee, he doesn't run as fast the next time. It's pretty logical. But today, they actually don't go for the knees and shoulders like they used to. Today, they go after the ball. And there's a reason for it. You see, if you're running with the ball and nobody's there to stop you, you're going to get exactly where you want to get. Here's the amazing thing. If they can rip that ball out of your hands, it doesn't matter how far you run. You're not going to get anywhere. Does that make sense? But this is the problem with Christianity, if we're not careful. Is we forgot what the ball is, and we're not even carrying it. The ball is the gospel of Jesus Christ and the name of Christ that's to be touted on everything we do. It says no matter what you do, in word or in deed, do it in the name of Jesus Christ, giving glory to God the Father through him. Do you realize what that means? No matter what it is, Jesus should be attached to it. And this is what, this is what the problem is. You know what, you know what happens? Is these great things that start out as ministries and they want to help people and they want to love on people and they do this. And then what happens is someone on the line, the government says, well, we can help fund you. And then the government says, you need to stop talking about Jesus. And they're like, oh, well, then we're going to lose our funding. So let's just throw it on the ball and keep running. So now it's like, you know what we do is we, well, what's, what's your ministry? It's called, you know, like Christian blankets for the homeless. What's your ministry? Well, we, we give blankets to the homeless. I'm like, well, okay, that's three of the four words. I'm like, but do you share Jesus? Oh, no, we don't share Jesus. So what happened is you kept running into the end zone and you're doing your little dance and you're doing everything and you have nothing to throw down because you don't have the ball anymore and you're no threat to the enemy because you didn't score any points that way. And so what you have is you're on a basketball court and you're all doing this. But you've got nothing in your hands. And you look good and you're like, oh, was so good. And the enemy's like, y'all, you could just do that all day. And like, mm-hmm, yeah. And enemy's like, yeah, you just keep, keep doing it. Because without the ball, you're no threat. And hear me, beloved. So we have our clubs and we sing our songs and we do our doodahs and we zippity doodah eh, and we have our things and we, and we do kind things, but the moment we don't bring the ball into it, what happens is we confuse the world. And unfortunately, we do that a lot. Here, by the end of this, he says, I want to give you a covenant of peace. Because you were serious about making sure this was a holy place. Hey, people say, I want people to come in and I don't want them to even know they're in church. I want you to know you're in church. I want this to be so much like heaven, it's the strangest place you've ever been. So by the time you walk out, you're like, I don't know, it was just amazing and I want to go back. Not, well, I don't know, it's kind of like the bars, except we don't serve alcohol. Some places actually, they do that too. So please hear me as we go to prayer. What if today we actually were serious about letting God eradicate the camp? I mean, serious about it. Chasing at all the Midianites. Those invitations right now that we are bad, the inside, we're secretly entertaining and we're going, I don't know, it sounds so cool. Well, it sounds so limiting. So it's being healthy. So it's being safe. Marriage is limiting. But I don't in any way have a problem with that. This November, it'll be 25 years. That's 25 years of, of, actually I should say it's much more than that because we knew each other longer, of being committed to one girl. I never have to worry about waking up with a disease. I have to worry about what I've done to someone or what they've done to me. But that's so limiting. It's gloriously so. And I have no objections. 
God has ordained for you a place in the camp. And it is a place of holiness where he wants to fill all the needs. And then every relationship we get into is from a state of overflow, not a state of need. But it starts at the cross. It starts with accepting that gift of Jesus, his death on the cross and his resurrection. If you said yes to that. Because today, my God wants to save you if you haven't. If you have said yes, let me ask you, are you in a place right now where you've been battling this chapter? Is it really your life right now? And somehow in desiring to be wanted and being wantable, you've been interviewing the wrong people to find out what that looks like? Because today, God wants to change that too. Today, God wants to clean out the camp, but here's the beauty. For everything he cleans out, drives out, burns out, sweeps out, he replaces with him. And there's nothing like that. But that's the choice you've got to make, not me. I made mine. Will you pray with me? God, I thank you so much for your word. I thank you for the blessing that you've, of the time we've had and the way that you've walked us through this chapter. Lord, I pray for those right now that have overestimated their own strength. We've all, we can all be there at one point or another. And from that become less careful because they feel like they've got it handled. Lord, for anyone who's at that stage, reverse that completely now. We recognize you are our strength, not us. And that we would be watchful. I prefer those that are even worse at the point where that even if they're here and they're maybe their parents sent them here or they've come here and they don't even know how they showed up here or whatever, but they're here kind of in physical body, but really not in heart. But today they there's so much more going on in their heart and they know it and they they know it's like ah oh, and they're fighting this because they're 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 craving the sin that's available to them right now somewhere in their life. Oh, but. Today, your voice says, come to me. Let us reason together. Though your sins be as scarlet, I'd make them white as snow. Draw near to me, I'll draw near to you. Show them, Lord, right now, that everything that they're really looking for can be found in you and they will never find it anywhere else. We really want to get real about this. I pray for those right now that are actually beyond that step. And they're at the place now where they're in the enemy camp. They know that tonight or tomorrow, they'll be back in it, warming themselves by the enemy's fire. God, give them such a distaste for that fire. And Lord, that the only reason to be in that camp is to proclaim you. May we get all the wantable want from you that we need so we don't go fishing in the wrong places for it. So for all the lying that we do for ourselves, for all the things along those lines, Lord, today, lay that to rest. Expose those lies in our heart and cleanse us, Lord, so that we could be pure and right before you like you intend. Pray for those right now, Lord, even at this moment, they're entertaining some invitation that they know is taking them out of the camp whether you want them. Lord, I pray that if they can't say no, shut the door so they can't get there. As irritating and as frustrating as that would be, remind them, Lord, it's because you love them. 
I pray for those right now, Lord, that are eating at the table with those who are really actively serving their own deity. Lord, if we can't make a difference, if we can't be there to minister, if we can't be there to proclaim you, then get us out. And I pray, Lord, for the church in this country and for the church in America, the Western world church, that just like Pergamus, which means mixed marriage, has invited into it things, Lord, into their tent that are just so wrong, so unscriptural, so defiant of your character and your intent. Purge your church, God. Bring us back to the gospel and make this all about Jesus like it belongs. Give us more, Lord, than just a distaste in the moment, Lord, but a genuine repentant and contrite heart. And right now, Lord, within this room and within the sound of this voice, if there be any who have yet to say yes to the gift of Jesus, where it all begins, the death on the cross for payment for their sins, as Scripture promised, his burial and resurrection three days later, just like Scripture promised, to be more than just the Savior who died for us, but also the God who lives for us as our Lord. And today wants to give us that innocence, wash us clean, adopt us and make us his own. If you've not accepted that gift, let today be the day you could say, I said yes to Jesus. And I'm going to pray a prayer and I ask you to listen. And at the end, if you agree, I ask you to give a confident and resounding amen. And what you're saying is, I agree. Let these words be my words. Let this prayer be my prayer. So be it in my life. Maybe today you want to recommit your life to Christ. I ask you again, same thing. When the prayer is done, if you can agree with it, give a confident, resounding Amen. And here it is. God, I'm a sinner. I'm not perfect. We know that. And you as a righteous judge punish all sin. But I believe that you so love me. You sent your only begotten Son, Jesus, to die on the cross so that all of my sins... And all the sins of this world could be properly punished. And there on that cross he died. And with that my guilty verdict. All of the crimes of my heart have been punished. And just like your scripture promised after being buried three days later he rose again. And offers me a new life. No longer under the dominion and tyranny of my own sin. But free to love you free to be alive in you. And with that I say yes, declaring Jesus as my Savior and as my Lord, I surrender myself to you now. So here I am, I'm yours. I may not understand everything, but I know this much, that you want me and I say yes. So have me now. I'm yours in Jesus' name. And if you agree, I ask you to give a confident and resounding Amen. So, Lord, thank you. May this be the first day of an entirely different life for every one of us, full of your joy and peace, your love. And make this camp where you are completely at its center. Jesus, in your name. Amen.